listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. You've just finished your grocery shopping. You're exhausted and you're late. You've pushed the cart full of groceries to your car and you've finished unloading them. It's pouring rain. You have people coming over for dinner tonight. So here's the million dollar question. Do you return the shopping cart? Think about it. Now I know some of you listening are shocked by the question because you would never have thought that. Others are smiling as you hear it because while perhaps you've never not returned your cart, you know that you've considered leaving it in the empty space beside your vehicle a few times. And I know there are others who have done it so many times, leaving their cart, that they don't remember whether or not they do or not. There's a theory that suggests that whether or not someone returns their cart when they're done proves whether they are capable of self-governing, whether they are actually a good person or not. Here's how shopping cart theory goes. To return a shopping cart is an easy, convenient task, one which we all recognize as the correct and appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. Simultaneously, it's not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, the shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. No one's going to punish you for not returning the cart. No one's going to fine you or hurt you for not returning it. Yet you gain nothing by doing it. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your heart. You must return the shopping cart because you feel that it is the right thing to do. Because it's correct. Even when no one's watching. So the theory suggests that a person who's unable to do this is no better than an animal. An absolute savage who can only be made to do what is right by threatening them with law and the force that stands behind it. Now, the shopping cart, the author of this theory suggests, is what determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. Now, I know that that's probably an oversimplification. I remember discussing this theory with a couple of friends a couple of years ago, and it led to some heated debate amongst us. One friend admitted that he never returns the cart. He claimed to be that, that it was someone else's job. He suggested that if he did return the cart, that eventually it might put someone out of work. You can imagine how heated the conversation got when my other friend felt that it was the most selfish thing not to do. You had to return your cart. And yet our friend felt he was doing the world a favor by leaving it for somebody else. You see, for some, the thought of not doing something as simple as returning a cart is a moral dilemma. While others feel that it's no reflection of their ability to be a good human being at all. Now, I've come to believe that what I do when no one is looking determines a lot about who I am when people are. So do people need the threat of punishment in order to do good things? Hmm. See, this now becomes more than a moral dilemma. Now it's a spiritual one. Is it true, as some have proposed, that the only reason people turn to religion is because they're afraid of the hypothetical consequences if they don't? If you remove the threat of hell, some suggest, then nobody would want 
spirituality or religion at all. The person who feels this way has completely misunderstood spirituality, but I can understand how easily that can be done. There's a great quote from a John Green novel that has challenged me for years. I've had it written in a a few different journals. Here it is. I'm going to take a bucket of water and I will pour it on the flames of hell. And I'm going to use a torch and I'm going to burn down the gates of heaven so that the people will not love God for want of heaven or fear of hell, but because he is God. The challenge of that quote implies that when you love someone out of fear of what might happen if you didn't, it isn't actually love. To say you love God because you're afraid of the consequences if you didn't, I'm sorry, that isn't love. And your mechanical view of God is wretched because that can't be God. For hundreds of years, though, religious institutions held people hostage as the gatekeepers of their salvation. So people weren't religious because they found life through its practices, but because it was the only way to be a member of a functional society. Jesus shows up in a culture not unlike ours. Different tribes of religion all claiming to be right, while every other group wrong, this oppositional thinking ruled the world. It still does. But many misunderstand the story of Jesus and believe that he just came into that scene, that already convoluted time, with a competing religious philosophy just to start a new one. But that's a misunderstanding. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. And I personally disagree with recent arguments that claim that Jesus came to end religion. You just don't see that in his life, and his teaching. Religious practice was a huge part of, of what Jesus did and what he encouraged in others. But what we do see is that Jesus didn't come to end religion, but to transcend religion. In other words, he didn't come to end the established communities of faith and all the diverse thinking. He came to create an alternative new community that transcends both your religious perspective and cultural background. It was bigger. A spiritual community that rises above all the things that would divide us. With all the competing Jewish philosophies or denominations of his day, Jesus never picks one and says, that one's right, all the rest are wrong. Instead, he challenges them all to become more. We read of him challenging both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He challenges the Essenes and the Zealots. These are all different traditions. He even challenges those who belong to the wider circles of culture, the Samaritans, the Romans, the Greeks, the Gentiles. Jesus' message is an invitation into something new, something bigger, something beyond that transcends all the different groups they're a part of, where a new kind of belonging is offered. A belonging that transcends or rises above the political, social, ethnic, and yes, even religious differences. Because Jesus didn't come to deliver information, but transformation. He comes as the way to life. And these are his words. This new family that he begins to create isn't one where our responsibility to fit in is ours, but one where we awaken to an invitation to come alive as we follow him. There is no threat. When Jesus comes on the scene in Mark's biography, Jesus uh, declares that now is the time. The world of the divine is within reach and that we need to change our thinking to see what's all around us. And he declares, this is the good news. 
Four Gospels record that story of Jesus. The word gospel comes from the Greek euangelion, and then the Anglo-Saxon translation meaning good news. Gospel means good news, not the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's good news, period. Consider that when Jesus comes upon Peter and John fishing with their father, in the early pages of the Gospels, the good news, he shouts out to them to leave the fishing business and join him. Now, they don't personally know this Jesus. They may have had an awareness of this traveling popular sage, but look, they immediately leave it all. Do you ever wonder why they immediately leave everything and follow this strange man? Does Jesus sweeten the deal by offering them eternal life if they do? A ticket out of eternal damnation? No. He merely says, if you stop fishing, I will teach you how to fish for humanity. They didn't take this huge risk because they were scared of what would happen if they didn't. No, there was no threat attached to the invitation. There's no consequences. If they had a state in the family business, there's no consequences. But Jesus says, come and be more. And they do. When the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 records Jesus finding Levi, the tax collector, in Capernaum, sitting at his tax collection booth in his very lucrative uh, taxation job, Luke writes that Jesus casually says, hey, Levi, come and follow me. Both Mark and Luke, when they record this story, say that Levi immediately got up and left it all behind. Now, he didn't do this because he was afraid of the consequences of saying no. No, he chose to get up and be a part of something he didn't fully understand. Because he, had, he saw it as an invitation to belong to something bigger than anything he'd experienced. It's interesting that all the disciples belonged to various groups where they had certain identities, whether fishermen or tax collecting or even ethnically Judaism. They were all a part of something, but Jesus invites them to belong to something new, a cause that is bigger than all the other ones that can often just divide us. It's not alongside, it's above. And Jesus doesn't have to threaten them to do it. There are no consequences for saying no, just the invitation to come and find life. And they leave it all and they follow because there was something at the center, at the core that drew them. Years later of following this Jesus, in John chapter 6, we find it recorded that Jesus is teaching in a synagogue back in Capernaum, and the crowd is struggling with his wisdom. There are those there listening to his challenging ideas, and they begin to ask, who is this guy? Isn't this just Joseph's son? Right? They're asking these distracting questions because it, uh, it, it, it helps alleviate the, the challenge of what he's talking about, pushing them to be, to be more than they've become. Many begin to grumble, and John writes that on that day, many left and no longer followed Jesus. His teaching was pushing them out of their comfort zone. It was radical. It was new. And Jesus, seeing those that were leaving, he turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them, do you want to leave too? And in John chapter 6, verse 68, Peter says, and where would we go? You alone have the words of life. There are no consequences if they wanted to leave. Jesus doesn't threaten them. Instead, he offers them an out. But Peter says something so amazing. Here's how I read between the lines. I feel like Peter is saying, Jesus 
Belonging to you, while difficult, is where we find life. A life that can't be found anywhere else. Where are we going to go? Where else are we going to find this? The community of faith is meant to be that beautiful. The attraction isn't life insurance. It's life. 30 years ago, Paul Hebert wrote about the ways that we find ourselves in social groups and experience belonging. I think it was groundbreaking what he, what he discovered. He said that it, it, it really, in, in fact, his, his um, philosophy helps us understand in a simple way, perhaps how the new family of Jesus is creating something radically different. And maybe how we've missed the plot. Paul Hebert calls it centered set versus bounded set thinking. Here's how it's explained. In bounded set thinking, consider yourself a farmer with a three-acre ranch. It's small enough that you build a fence to keep your cattle in and to keep all the other animals out. So you picture this field. The animals are safe because they know where the fences are. They know where the boundaries are. So nothing can get in and they know who's supposed to not get out. If we apply this example to our thinking, this would be considered bounded set thinking. But Paul offers us an alternative type of thinking. He calls it centered set thinking. He says, what if you're a rancher with a huge amount of land that's so big that you can't actually build fences around the whole property? Instead of building fences, you dig wells. So the idea being that animals won't go too far away from the well because their life literally depends on that water source. This type of thinking is considered centered set thinking. It's different than bounded set because it's not about the boundaries. It's about access to life. And when our lives are small and contained, yeah, centered, bounded set thinking seems to make sense. But when we discover that life is big, there's a lot of variables. There's so much mystery. We don't have the certainty of boundaries. Centered set thinking is far more enticing. It's beautiful. With bounded set thinking, you can imagine a community, whether a church or a social group where individuals are together because of the boundaries that have been clearly marked. It could be membership, it could be doctrines, it could be rules, whatever helps them determine who's in and who's out. This is bounded set thinking. Now, I, re I recognize the value in this. We all belong to various groups in this category. And with bounded set thinking comes a sense of safety, for sure. But this was never how faith community was meant to be expressed. Alternatively, in a centered set group, it isn't about where the boundaries are. There are no borders that determine who's in and who's out. Instead, centered set community is defined by what it's, what's at its core, not what's at its perimeter. What it values, its mission, who or what it follows. People in a centered set community are not seen as in or out. Some people are close to the center, while others are at a distance from it. But everyone's included because it isn't about distance, it's about direction. Which way are you headed? Which way are you facing? A life of faith is facing and following Jesus. So now you can see the danger of some religious communities who at the center, they don't have Jesus. They have the Bible or they have some specific doctrines or dogmas or statements of faith. 
And as we think about Jesus and the community he's creating, the community we're, we're all invited into, it isn't determined by fences, by rules, by doctrine. It's discovered in the direction we're facing. The invitation from Jesus is to follow, not to arrive. Salvation is a process, not a destination, not a checkbox on a piece of paper. Faith is often seen for its faithfulness to a set of values and ideas behind us and keeping us safe by surrounding us. But faith is a direction that is guiding us forward, not holding us back or in. Humanity and culture are adapting and evolving. Faith by its nature is a movement, not a prison. Listen to how Christian philosopher and theologian C.S. Lewis describes this very thing. He says, the world does not consist of either Christians or non-Christians. There are people, and a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who can still call themselves by that name, and some of them, clergy. There are also others who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. They are a people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine of Christ, but they are so strongly attracted by him that they are his as much in a much deeper sense than they fully understand. I love that. It's all about direction, not about the boundaries. Jesus is constantly challenging and pushing those boundaries and beckoning us to come and follow from wherever we are. His words are life, and his way is leading somewhere. That's why when people ask me if I'm a Christian, I say no, but I'm becoming one. I'm not what I was. I'm not yet who I will be but I'm heading in the direction of transformation. Because at the end of the day, it isn't the proximity to Jesus that ultimately matters. It's whether or not we're facing him and what he's about. The distance is irrelevant because if you're not facing the same direction, you're actually not following him. But at any point, at any distance, if we just turn our face towards the sun and begin to walk in his light, we discover the life that he came to bring us. How far away we feel doesn't matter because the power of belonging to God and the mission of love travels past any obstacles that may be between us. Shame, failure, sin, it just doesn't matter. He draws us to his heart and that is how transformation happens. We were created to belong to God, to each other, and to this beautiful creation around us. And the reason the world is hurting so much is for the most part, we've forgotten that. Or maybe we've just never been told. So when people ask me if I would be part of a religious group if I didn't feel obligated or threatened by not joining, they've misunderstood what it's all about. I'm a part of this because together we're reminded. We're reminding each other every week of what's at the center. And it isn't us. It's Jesus. And like Peter, it's there. I found life. So in the spirit of Jesus' first message, it's time to wake up and live in the fullness of who we are created to be, family.